You are listening to the Enormo Cast. The Enormo Cast is proud to be sponsored by Black Diamond Equipment. At Black Diamond, the process of building gear begins and ends with climbing. A need drives an idea, and that idea is tweaked, tested, and refined in a never ending cycle. Use, design, engineer, build, repeat. Guided by this philosophy, Black Diamond has been making equipment for the full spectrum of climbing pursuits for more than 25 years. From the boulders to the big walls and everything in between, Black Diamond makes gear and apparel you can trust when it matters. Visit BlackDiamondEquipment.com to check out the latest all-new gear, as well as a fine-tuned collection of apparel, and get the latest stories, photos, and videos on their blog, Black Diamond Experience. Look, folks. We all know that ice climbing is a miserable, cold endeavor, punctuated by small spikes of joy, mostly when it's over. But if you're planning on heading to the famous ice park in Uray, Colorado, to climb out your self-loathing, why not up the joy ratio by staying in the Beesbaden Hotel and Spa? Imagine, after your third round of screaming barfies, you can retire to their vapor cave and soaking pool for a, quote, strange, dark, steamy underworld soaking experience. The Wiesbaden is affordable luxury in Ure. In fact, if you climb in Ure and don't stay there, you are totally blowing it. Discounts all winter. Go to wiesbadenhotsprings.com for more information. Once again, that's wiesbadenhotsprings.com. It's really the only way you'll find me ice climbing. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, the big place outside of town. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment with support from Maxim Ropes and the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is January 3rd, 2016, about 9.30 Mountain Standard Time. It's a new year. We made it past the dark time. The solstice is behind us. Each day is getting longer here in the Northern Hemisphere anyway. Can't help you folks in the Southern Hemisphere. It's summertime there, so you have nothing to complain about. On today's show... Episode 96, a conversation with Swedish climber, sort of. This guy's actually kind of the world music of climbing, but he doesn't suck. Saeed Belhaj, from Sweden, half Moroccan, half Finnish, but we'll get to that. It's January, it's dead cold here in Colorado. 
I am going to uh, the Ice Fest again this year. Ice Fest is a little bit later, in two weeks, I think like the 14th or something like that. Headed down there. I don't have anything planned for the Enormacast, actually. It's really hard to get interviews during those hectic festivals. And frankly, I just want to go have some fun like we did last year. Same guys saddling up Simon and Steve from the last few Lander festivals, as well as URA last year. And also uh, the last listener mail, actually, uh, episode 73 or so, quite a while ago. Maybe time for another listener mail. I forget how much fun those things are. Got to get one in here. Anyway, headed down there with those guys, the posse. Going to drink a lot. Going to stay at the V-Spaden, which uh, is really about 90% of the reason I go to the Ice Fest, um, is to soak in their pools inside the cave. If you guys have not been there and you go to Uray, as I said in the commercial, you are blowing it. The place is awesome. It's actually really affordable, especially if you pack a few people in the room, you know, quietly pack them in. But man, it is so nice to walk off the snow, off the ice, and dip into those pools before you go out drinking, and then come home and do it afterwards. Good times at the V-Spotten. Check it out. Oh, by the way, that's spelled with a W, just so you know, V-Spotten, you know, German-style Ws. Go back and listen to Stefan. You'll hear some good German Ws out of that guy. What else is happening here at the Enormacast? Headed to the Winter Trade Show. The little brother of the trade shows uh, next week. Going to get a few interviews there. I'm going to try not to hammer it so hard as I did last time. But as I've said before, it's a nice place to cross paths with people that I would not normally be able to talk to. So got a few things lined up there. Hopefully they'll go well. And I'll just rolling into the new year. Trying not to get weak here in the wintertime. Building things. That's what I'm doing. I'm building things in my house. Got to keep that mind occupied. Okay, Saeed Belhaj. My friend Alan Karn introduced us and let me know that Saeed was coming to America, as it were, and uh, introduced us on Facebook and found out that he was going to be right here in Rifle. So I connived my way to sit down with Saeed. As I've said on the show many times, I'm sort of like a hunter looking for these people when they cross paths because of my face-to-face rule can be a little bit difficult more like a stalker, really. And actually, it's kind of funny because up at OR, a lot of times I have to ask these strangers to come to my cheap hotel room. That's how I work it. I have them get in my car, drive to my hotel room. Maybe first time we ever met. I think that's the way it went down with sweet, sweet Paige Clausen. Very trusting, but now we're friends, so it's okay. Anyhow, back to Saeed. I was super excited to talk to this guy. And though he grew up really as a sport climber, and sort of came of age and climbing right as that was taking off. It's kind of interesting because it occurred to me that there is actually now such thing as sort of an old school sport climber. Somebody that started right at the beginning, was still letting a lot of that kind of philosophy, that sort of spiritual pursuit thing kind of cross over from the old trad days and into sport climbing. They weren't too different really in the beginning. Same kind of folks were switching over to sport climbing. Yeah, so he brings a lot of that kind of attitude to his climbing, this spiritual connection, this mystical connection. A lot of times it defies words, even though Saeed does his best to try to explain it. In addition, we talk a bunch about music, about a really interesting type of music that Saeed is into from North Africa. Pretty wide-ranging conversation. And I'll tell you, sitting across the uh, 
coffee table from this guy up in uh, Andrew Bisharet's office. He's an impressive guy. He's captivating, this guy. And he's also full of positive energy. I ended up climbing around him and seeing him rifle over the next few days through some really gnarly weather. And him and his partner were still just going for it and having a great time. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you become a fan of this guy, Saeed Belhaj. He is all in. Because English isn't really, it's, sure. you know, I haven't spoken English for, for two days now. So it's good for us just to meet now and mm-hmm. talk a little bit. It's, mm-hmm. it's good. And sometimes I, I can't find the word in my vocabulary. And yeah. then uh, I, get, I can get stuck. But usually if, we're, if it's a relaxed atmosphere like this, right. no problem. So I don't even know how to pronounce your last name, actually. You want you want the the authentic version or just the I want yes I want to hear the authentic version <laughs> and then what I say won't really probably get Okay there, so, so it's in Arabic mm-hmm. it's Said Belhaj Okay but you can just say Said Belhaj I suppose That sounds a little more French actually Peut-être hein? Okay go the first one uh, Said Belhaj Said Belhaj Yeah wow not bad good not first bad. shot Thanks thanks a lot so I'm sitting here with Said Belhaj, thanks. You're, you rolled your eyes a little bit that time. But <laughs> um, we're sitting at actually up in uh, Andrew Bishrat's office. He was nice enough to lend us this space. And uh, Saeed's here from Sweden. And uh, thanks, for, thanks for coming and, and sitting down on the Enormacast, man. Oh, thanks really, to you. It's really exciting. I've read about you for years. Uh, Andrew, specifically, recently, I don't know, last couple of years, he had a profile in, in Rock and Ice. And, uh, but your name is like, it's just kind of been there for a long time in climbing, if, if, particularly if one pays attention to European climbing. And so it's pretty exciting to sit down with you. You're, you're sort of a, like a, a kind of a mythical figure to me. <laughs> that sounds kind of strange. Wow. Yeah. Ex- okay. So hmm. there's some pressure for you. So okay. Yeah. Do something mythical. <laughs> yeah. Let's would. take it from there. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what I wanted to start with, um, if we want to just roll in, is is maybe go from big to small. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is, I actually kind of want to ask you about uh, Sweden. Mm-hmm. That's where you are from. Mm-hmm. Even though you have this really complicated heritage, that's really interesting, and I want to get to that too. But let's go big, like the big thing, because I've heard from a few fans in Sweden. I've met a few Swedish climbers over the years, but it's a little bit of a mystery, like what the climbing scene is like in a place like Sweden. So yeah. let's go big, and then we'll we'll go sure. into how you fit into it and go from there. Yeah, I mean, in in Sweden and you know in, in Scandinavia in general, we have a quite old climbing tradition because mm-hmm. we have a lot of rock there. And especially in Norway, Sweden is not bad. Finland is quite flat, and and Denmark is completely flat. There is nothing there, apart from climbing gyms. So um, <clears throat> we have a lot of climbing, but for some reason, and I hear this question very often because uh, people always ask me, "Hey, do you have any climbing in Sweden?" I said, "Ah, of course. That's that's where I started. That's where I that's where I climb a lot of time because that's where I live." You know. And for some reason, it hasn't really caught the eye of the international climbing media. 
And uh, I mean, there are a lot of places like this, mm -hmm. little hidden jewels, because it really is a jewel. Like our mutual friend uh, Alan Karn was there uh, like a couple of months ago, visited us, and he said, like, this is as good as any trad cragging anywhere mm -hmm. in the world, you know. And you're talking. He, you guys were climbing granite, right? Yes, it's it's yeah. it's all mostly all granite, mm -hmm. and uh, there's a lot of trad climbing. There's a lot of good sport climbing. There's a lot of bouldering, and I think for someone who would be a visitor would find that very uh, exotic because right. it's it's Scandinavia. Right. It's so unlike anything else. Even for for another European, if you would come from Germany, that's why Germans love Sweden, for instance. For someone even coming from France or Spain, it's like wow, this is a, it's it's a different planet, right? Because it's there's not a lot of granite on the mainland of Europe in terms, of maybe in the Alpine, but yeah, you know, it's known mostly for its its uh, limestone. Yeah, it is very it's, it yeah. is very different, and you know it's very pittoresque. We always climb by the by the ocean, you know, and there's a lot of granite and forests, and it's a it's a, it's a nice place altogether. Uh, but if you want to climb some big stuff, I'd recommend Norway. But Sweden is a really good place on the way because it's not far. Like from right. Gothenburg, my hometown, up to Oslo, it's like three hours. And along that coast, which is the west coast, there's tons, probably thousands of routes uh -huh. just in this little area, you know. That's also probably the best area, I would say, uh, in general. There are other places as well. But for the highest concentration of good rock climbing, that's, that's the place to go. Mm -hmm. And that's what people call Bohuslän. That's kind of the name of the, the region. Right. And you were born in Sweden? Yes, yeah, so I was, I was born in, in, in Gothenburg, okay. which is the second largest city. you don't look Swedish. <laughs> what does we'll a Swede... We'll get to that. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I always get to hear this, and you know, maybe this was true a hundred years ago. Now it's a little more mixed up. Yeah. But if you look at what the world looks like these days, it's, it's, it's a mix. It's, uh, you can't really avoid this. Uh, right. And uh, so my father is from uh, Morocco in North Africa, and my mother's from Finland. And these three countries, Morocco, Finland, and, uh, and Sweden, they're completely different. Although Finland is a neighboring country to Sweden, it's completely different. It mm -hmm. always, because not only is the language completely different, mm -hmm. it doesn't have anything to do because Swedish, Norwegian, and Danish, they come from the Germanic language source. Right. So they have a lot of similarities. I can speak to a Norwegian, even a Danish person. But Finnish comes from somewhere else because the Finnish people also came from a, more from Russia, you know. Right. And it, always, it was always a little bit squeezed in between the big brother Russia and Sweden. So they have their own culture, you can mm -hmm. say. And then obviously Morocco is really different in, in, in all ways, you know. Mm -hmm. My father and mother, they met in Gothenburg and that's where they decided to settle down. So I was born there and I was raised there also. But you, ha you have a lot of connections still to Morocco mm -hmm. and to that culture as well. Yep. So as you were growing up, were you in both places or were you primarily in Sweden? Yeah, we were primarily in Sweden and we always spent uh, the winters and the Christmas times and things like this and summers in Finland. Okay. Mainly with my grandparents. So mm -hmm. I have a very strong connection to Finland. Okay. Even stronger than Sweden right. in, in many ways, you know. And... Not may, maybe not every year because it wasn't possible for us at the time economically. We went to Morocco okay. as much as possible. But since the last maybe 15 years, I go at least once to Morocco because that's where I really feel that my second half has its, has its roots, you know. Okay. And it, it's great because I speak Finnish fluently, also Arabic, and, uh, well, I speak six languages in, in total. But 
I think the language and the the whole fact that my parents taught me these languages, mm-hmm. we always, it was always Arabic with my father, always finished with my mother. And I have so many friends with the same type of background right. who lost their language. And what ultimately happens is you lose your, this part of your culture a lot. Mm-hmm. Because for me to go to Finland and not speak the language with my grandparents doesn't make any sense. There's nothing there. Would have, wouldn't have been anything there for me, you know. Same thing with Morocco. So that has been a really... Sp- good way and a way to sort of connect with with these origins so you grew up in a house speaking on a daily basis swedish uh arabic and finnish and finnish just back and forth back and forth now was this was this something that was um i'm kind of curious about this mix because it's it's such I mean, you, you said earlier, like, oh, the, the world is becoming more and more like this. But it's still an interesting, you know, three corners of the world mm-hmm. to come from, mm-hmm. if you will. So was this by design with your parents wanting you to learn these things? Or was it just sort of like we hope that or it just happened? Yeah, I think it was both. But I think they took a really uh, because I think they knew a lot of other people who weren't that uh, they didn't really stick to this idea of mm-hmm. keeping up with the language. Okay. And I think that was great. I mean, if I would answer my father in Swedish, he would just look at me like, what the hell are you saying, man? <laughs> like, are you, are, you, are you kidding me? We speak Arabic. <laughs> right. And that was the thing that saved the whole thing. And, I can, right. and looking back at that, this today, I, I appreciate it. Like, it's one of my, my biggest gifts. Well, certainly. I mean, and then you went on to obviously learn English. Mm. Although that's, I think, seems like most people I know of your generation and younger maybe mm-hmm. has come out of school with a really good English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and what are the, that's four. What else you got? And then French and French. Spanish. Yeah. Because I, I climbed so much in Spain and France. Mm-hmm. And you can't live, really be there without talking these languages. You lose, again, so much of the culture. Right, right. I mean, go there and try to speak English. You know, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's a little rough, especially mm-hmm. in France. You know, and it's interesting because I think that the research has really shown that learning those three in probably English simultaneously in school, you know, probably really set your brain up to be this like sponge for languages. Yeah, I mean, my brother is exactly the same. All my right. bigger brother, he works with languages even. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, and, I, and it's not a problem to switch. I mean, the other day I was speaking French with Robin Herbesfield and in the day I came into this gas station near Boulder and this guy there just started talking with me in, in Spanish he thought I was Mexican <laughs> I was a bit like okay yeah, my here, we go. Friend. <laughs> here we go here we go he comes to Carbonell and he's like Chris I don't have to speak English here I'm like yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know you're good to go dude yeah so uh, and it's not a problem I got a bit overwhelmed and then in the evening we had dinner with Christian Griffith at this Mexican restaurant where we eat every night and of course some um, the chefs came in and I tried to use some of my Mexican words, you know, to, but it, it's fun, you know, that's yeah. uh, it's, that, that's, as I said earlier, it's, it's such a gift that, that connects you to this person or this mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. It's like a, you don't have to take a big detour. You can go straight into the source. So you're a little kid growing up in Sweden. All right. And I always want to get to this, uh, this moment, especially when talking with people from other countries other cultures, but also other climbing cultures. So what happened to get you into climbing then? So, <laughs> yeah, so, um, I mean, this is, it wasn't really that long ago. It was in the beginning of the 90s, but I kind of have an old school 
way how I started and um, like all other kids I was climbing on everything you know trees and buildings and whatever but most kids stop at a certain age you know when they think they're so mature that they can't do this anymore and they start doing whatever they do but I was kind of slow I suppose so I, I just kept on climbing and I climbed the highest tree in school I did I climbed in through the window of the classroom and I did all these things and Finally, I got to a point where I couldn't really see how to take my climbing to, to, to the, what you use here, uh, this expression, to the next level. Uh-huh. And then it was kind of a combination. I, I saw this program about uh, rock climbing on, on TV. It was just a really short thing, and it just, it just clicked. Like, what is that? You know, with all the gear. I mean, I was still a kid. Just the gear and the ropes and everything just looked amazing, you know. And also on the opposite side from where I grew up, this is just outside Göteborg, in a little place called Möndal. There's like a huge, very obvious rock formation that's called Rallaberget. And I think, you know, like in all countries where you have the mountains really close, that's why climbing started off really early, because it's, it's there, it's so obvious. And people, all, all, they were always drawn to the, to the mystery of, of, of the mountain or just, you know, and the same thing was here with this Rallabergat. I just wanted to go there and see what it was. Just get up on top and see, see for myself, like an adventure, like a discovery. And because uh, I didn't know anybody who was a climber, I didn't know what climbing really was. But I was just so drawn to this thing. Hard to, really hard to explain what it was. And of course, it started really slow uh, because. Uh, if you wanted to do a climbing course, which was the natural thing to do at the time, I was too young. There was one really lousy climbing wall at the time. I was too young to climb there, so I had to do it myself. There was no internet. We so did, how old were you about? Like, we're talking a little... Like 10 years. Little teeny dude. Yeah, yeah, like, really. And I was, I mean, I'm still small, right. so just imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, 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 I went to the library and got the only book about rock climbing and that book was quite dated even that was from the early 80s like really old school techniques i didn't have money to buy all this gear that you needed so i had to make it my, myself so uh, first of all i made a, a, a harness from a seat belt from a from a car that we found in finland and the rope we got it from some friends who were into boats so there was a this was a really thin static rope and also the carabiners i put together everything that I found. And at this time, it was uh, trad climbing that was the thing to do. I mean, sport climbing. In this book, there was nothing. Well, maybe there was a picture of a bolt, Mm -hmm. but it was all trad. So I went to the climbing shop and, uh, you know, the cheapest nuts were the smallest ones. (laughs) So my first set, it was all these small nuts, you know, these small hexcentrics. Right. And you can just imagine the type of climbs I would do at the time. There were huge cracks and things like that. You couldn't really fit any of those nuts anywhere. And we were just, I mean, it was an adventure. It was always, we went just out to this, to this rock and it was always like on-site, first descent, complete adventure. So when you say we, who had you recruited into your, uh, into your, your, the fold? Any, anybody. Anyone. Anyone. <laughs> My brother, but he was too scared. Friends from my class. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he realized that shit. This is uh, this is too dangerous. I mean, he was a bit older than me, so right, he had right. better. Uh, 
And um, you know, I would just take friends from school, and of course, there were some accidents. And after the one accident, that kid he never came back. This friend of mine, because their parents told them you can't go out with this maniac, you know, right. and climb. So after a while, there were not so many friends left who wanted to come along. So it was a very adventurous time, and uh, in one way, I look at this period like shit. I wished it was more like today. You can because I had so much will to climb, and that there was more like a forum where I could express this. This thing, you know, maybe start in a climbing gym or whatever, but it was a really slow start. But at the same time, this really shaped me as a climber, you know, because nobody told me what climbing was supposed to be. There was nothing about grades or you should dress like this, or it was your my own way of mm-hmm. discovering rock climbing, and it was an adventure. And I think this thing, people always ask me, ah, do you still climb? Well, of course, you know, do you still eat? Do you still sleep? It's, it's such a natural thing to do, and. Uh, I think maybe it, it's it's good to uh, to have a start like this to really find your place and to know what climbing is for you. Nobody's telling you what it what it should be or what it could be. Mm-hmm. And then of course things evolved. I there was a new climbing club in, in in town, so I did my climbing course, which was one of the best weekends in my life. I got to meet real climbers and use all the gear. It was incredible. You know, I was. I was like in a complete trance that whole weekend, basically. And also, I started to sneak into the climbing gym, and they threw me out. And I would come back, and I would kind of knew which which people knew me. And sometimes I would get in. Sometimes they would throw me out. And finally, they gave up because you know we have these long winters in Sweden. Yeah. And I was training in the gymnastics this that we have in school, this big hall. And I would sometimes leave the window open after finishing the class and get back and rip, rappel down from the roof top in through this window that I left open and then go in and train there on ropes and all types of things. I was, I was desperate, you know. And at this climbing gym, finally, they were like, okay, shit, we can't, we can't get rid of this guy. So wait, I want to go back. Mm-hmm. So this, like, after the school's closed, mm-hmm. you're like, I'm going to keep training. Mm-hmm. And you'd rappel in through the window and then... Yeah, that I left open. Right, okay. So I would, I would be, and, right. and I'm sure if you go back into that place today, right. you'd still see the old chalk marks right. way up in the ceiling. And, uh-huh. I, you know, I was leading up, uh, putting Prusik knots on the ropes, getting up there, putting... We were leading, someone would follow, you know. Uh, okay, you get across to the, the beams and... Exactly, and this right, type of thing. Right, right. You get to the Roman rings, uh-huh. you'd make a hanging belay there, you know. <laughs> just, you know, that, that was just the way it was. Right. And uh, anyway, we did this for a while, but, you know, I wanted to climb. This was not really real climbing. So we got into the gym and finally these, the managers gave up and uh, they gave me like a... They found a guy to sort of take, to look after me, you know. And it was this guy, Jens Larsen, who has maybe one of the biggest climbing sites for climbing today, which is oh, 8A.nu. Oh, right. Okay. So we met back in, this is in 94. And also that summer I was in, um, my, my father is a, is a doctor in environmental economics. So we always, some summers we were in, in Austria, some summers in France. And in the summer of um, 94, we went to France to this uh, little village called Montbonneau. It's just between Grenoble and uh, Kroll, where Petzel is, actually. And, you know, I had saved up all this money to buy my first real nice uh, set of nuts and uh, some nice carabiners and things like this. 
And I'd been climbing around Gothenburg, you know, setting up top ropes or leading these really scary things, but I had really bad gear. And I bought all this gear finally in France, and we get up to this crag, and it's covered with bolts. <laughs> and I had never seen that before, because it was just when sport climbing had started sure, to, early to, take off, yeah, to take off in Sweden, you know. And we, we will get to this later, but there was a big controversy about bolts in Sweden at that time, and it's still a huge issue and a huge debate even today, like uh, 20 years later. Mm -hmm. And what I realized in France, like, shit, I can climb five times as much as I could back home with all, all the trad gear, you know? Just climbing, you know, clipped bolts. Right. So that was also a really big moment in my, or a big thing that happened in my climbing life, discovering sport climbing, because mm -hmm. I was a traditional climber by, mm -hmm. that's how it all started, but I realized that, okay, for me the most important thing is maybe the actual climbing aspect. The adventure is, will always be uh, very important, but that's, this is probably why I do mostly sport climbing, even to this day, although I like all the other disciplines with climbing big walls or trad or bouldering or competition or ice climbing or whatever it is. I think for the pure climbing experience for me, this, ever since 94, this, is, this has been the, the main driving force, you know. It's just because I want to climb as much as possible, you know. So you come home back to Sweden, which it, the way you're describing it, um, you know, is kind of the way I would imagine in terms of the ethics in a place like that. You've got granite. I don't know, for whatever reason, tends to lend itself not so much for bolts, mm -hmm. more for trad climbing. Yep. And a lot of times when, you know, you've got these places, I think, like that are not necessarily centers of the tradition, um, more or maybe an outlying community they, it seems like those kind of controversies tend to be a little hotter out in those places to me really hot right. it, it's still burning hot right and uh, you know I met Jens there and he was right in the middle of the debate and right. he still is right. he's one of the biggest driving forces to try to because we have rules about what you can bolt and what you can't bolt this is not gritstone you know right. the gritstone no bolts that's right. it but that's not how how, how, how it's supposed to be done in, in Sweden. But anyways, I, I met him and I got right in the middle, just like this, threw him into the, the scene that was going on in Gothenburg. Mm -hmm. And it was also the competition scene that had just started to get really popular. And as I had played soccer, as you call it here before, I was, for me it was quite, quite a natural thing to do. I was like, okay, competition, why not? As I told you earlier on, we have, we have these long winters Training indoors was a great way to, to just have something to do. And after a while, we also started to go to the national competitions. It was a good way to connect with the rest of the, with the scene in, in Sweden. And uh, around this time, because like that summer of 94, it was still my father who came out to Belém, you know. And he was scary. I mean, you can't believe it. I mean, he's got, uh, what do you call it, vertige. Vertigo? Yeah, when yeah. you're scared of, when you're afraid of heights. Yeah. So, I mean, he was, uh, he was so nervous. Like, the summer of 95, we went to, uh, to Bukes together. And I was like, okay, this has to be the last trip we do. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, like, you know how climbing is. Yeah. Your company is maybe the most important thing sure. to encourage you, to make you feel relaxed, and right. you know, to make you feel good. He was so scared, you know, right. all the time. 
So, I mean, that was kind of the last, one of the last times he came out to watch me climbing, to be honest. Okay. And this is 20 years ago. But anyways, I got into the, the climbing scene in Gothenburg with Jens and all these other people and, st and started to do competitions. And in the summer of, uh, or actually the autumn of 95, uh, we went to one of the first youth world championships. This was in Laval in France. And uh, same thing there, like this climbing course weekend. It was a complete trance to meet all these youngsters from all over the world. And what's funny now is, I mean, if you look at the list of who was there and who won, etc., it was Chris Sharma, Katie Brown, um, a lot of other American people who, and North American people who mm -hmm. still climbed. There were a lot of the French people who became my good friends, like Tony Lamiche, Sylvain Millet, Liv uh, Sanso, Muriel Sarkani. There were a lot of, uh, they were already there at that time, you know. I didn't really get to know them then, but it's so nice to look back and see that most of these climbers still climb, you know, mm -hmm. in one way or another. Maybe not so much competition anymore, but... So that was really, really inspiring to see. Although it was competition, it was the first time for me to see a little bit what other people in my age were doing around the world. And, you know, and it was really cool because if you look at the North American athletes, everybody had these huge verve pants, big necklaces, dyed hair. You know, the scene of Rifle with Timmy, Timmy Fairfield and Kevin Bradford and all these guys who were mm -hmm. kind of in the... So I get, got a bit of this taste of the North American climbing culture, which was great because I think there's a big connection between Scandinavia and, and North America in, in terms of taste, both clothing and food and a lot of things, you know. So I had a lot more in common with them, also with the language, of course. Mm -hmm. And after that, I actually did 10 years of, of, of competition for the national team. So from 95 to 2005, I was quite active and so is is uh is sweden like a lot of um these european countries that have a, a funded team um was this something you could sort of do and f fund your life through or were you also working and, and doing a lot of other things to get by tunnel somewhere i mean how were you how were yeah. you making that all happen? yeah yeah it was you know <laughs> i mean the climbing federation had and still have quite a lot of money and it was supposed to go to the to the to the competition scene mm -hmm. but that's in the, in theory but in reality that was not the case so you know it was you know we would arrive in germany with a busload of youngsters we would sleep in a park you know on the ferry from sweden to germany you know some guys would sleep under a stair or something like this it was super low budget you know just to be able to do it and jens was he did his best you mm -hmm. know to keep the whole thing going because he right. was the coach of the first junior national okay. team. So it was, and still up to this day, you know, there's a lot of money, but I don't see that money going to the competitors. Mm -hmm. So uh, the competition scene, I realized this is, this is not the way to go for me in climbing and outdoor climbing was always the main thing. Mm -hmm. But as I was stuck in school, the long winters again, you know, right. training, well, what the hell, why not do competition? Right, you know? right. But so I did that for those years. But, you know, as soon as I finished high school, I knew where to go. And at that time, it was Aix-en-Provence in, in south of France. That was the mecca for, for, for sport climbing at the time. So as soon as I finished, my mother actually sponsored that first trip because my contracts weren't good enough. Mm -hmm. And I went there and I met up with François Legrand and we became really good friends and had like a year there almost climbing with him mainly. I met a lot of, a lot of other people, but... If really, if I look at it now, it was the 
the only th way to to evolve in my climate because the community in Sweden is I'm not going to go in on in detail too much about it to say something negative but I never really felt at home there and mm -hmm. I still don't you know that's why I've been traveling so much mm -hmm. and to doing that big step to get out of that bubble you know and mm -hmm. just go what you would call international that was if I wouldn't have done that I wouldn't be sitting here today okay that was like re a really really important uh, maneuver that I did back then were you also creating um, some sort of you said you were in school was there any ever any sort of thought of an alternative path was there something your parents wanted you to do <laughs> are you kidding me man <laughs> i was just curious yeah, yeah of a, course you know what we call here in the states did you have a backup plan <laughs> i never had a backup plan but my parents i mean uh they my, had a backup plan <laughs> man it's been a struggle for all these years you know because as i told you my father is afraid of heights mm -hmm. of course he didn't want his son to become a professional rock climber sure and also he didn't think that that was even possible right. nobody well, did. It, it barely is so and it barely right. is yeah but if i look look at it now I, I only worked for two months in my entire life you know <laughs> yeah and that's it yeah high five <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so i kind of tried that and said no yeah. this is not for me okay and i always just wanted to climb <laughs> what were you doing for those two months I was um, <laughs> playing bricks. Yeah, I was I was assisting this guy who had a who had a handicap. <laughs> okay. You know, it was a super easy job sure, to get. Sure. Because in Sweden you can you can get a job tomorrow if you right, go there. Right. It's not a place where people are just lazy who don't want to work actually right, to right. be honest. But anyways, so I tried that and it, that kind of funded my one of my first big trips to Spain and Morocco. Okay. Cool. And when I got back from that uh, I signed up with a with a clothing company called. Uh, well, it was, it just started to become a clothing company called Salomon. It's a French company, you know. Mm -hmm. They had their new line of clothes, and they wanted some climbers. And I had a little bit money before that, but that's kind of where I went more independent. Right. And this was Salomon Sweden only. It was not the not yet the international. That also almost happened, but then they changed course and let left climbing and clothing altogether okay. but that's a different chapter right so you're i mean you're out there now you're you're an outdoor climber but and you're being you know you say you have these contracts or anything else but we're talking about a pretty dirtbag existence oh yeah yeah i mean you know i think because we're what what kind of year are we talking about um so late this, 90s at this point yeah we're kind of i finished high school in 2000 right. okay so, from, so right around that yeah but you know, and, and even in the last decade, things have changed so much. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I made that joke of like, it really isn't like possible to be a professional mm -hmm. climber, mm -hmm. you know, even a decade ago, it was that much harder. And, uh, you know, it's, it, I just always think about like, when I think about like uh, someone like Francois Legrand, that era, you know, the French guys probably had some pretty good state backing, you know, in terms of because that's really strong in France, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and you tend to see all these great glamorous photos of them climbing, but certainly in between time, you know, they weren't like living the high life and you were like right in there with them. Yeah. I mean, Francois, Francois told me, I, I mean, I saw him just a few weeks ago and he told me already then like, it was much easier with sponsorship then because right. there were less climbers, you know? Sure. And there were some big deals to be done with Rolex, you know, oh, okay. Jeep, with companies that you wouldn't even imagine today. Okay. So Francois had a re he had a pretty good situation actually, mm -hmm. but he was the big, 
-hmm. There was only him. Right. He was the best climber in the world at the time. So, of course, for me, it was really dirtbag, as you said. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was uh, hitching around south of France, you know, with a bag of already cooked spaghetti in one hand, you know, putting the thumb out. And you get to the crag and you sleep there, you know, mm -hmm. just uh, in a cave or something. I was, did this one trip or several trips with this friend of mine, Cody Roth. Oh, yeah. Who's from Burke, from Albuquerque. Yeah. C Cody's been on the show. Okay, I great. Went to, I went to Colombia with Cody a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Great guy. Yeah, yeah. Super guy. And, yeah. you know, uh, I visited him in Burke. He came and visited me in Sweden and he did the, the Nordic Championships mm -hmm. in bouldering with me there. We had a great time. But it was really, it was the dirtbag life, lifestyle. But again, you know, when I look back at this, I don't have to do it anymore. Right. But it was a great thing to do and to have experienced mm -hmm. because you appreciate everything so much more. Mm -hmm. And climbing was really the, it was the hard way, man. Right. My parents, you know, they didn't really, they didn't really want me to climb. They never really supported me in climbing and nobody else did. And there was always someone also in the climbing community telling me how I was doing everything wrong. Sure. You know, when I started, I climbed like a, like a madman really fast, didn't use my feet, the typical Chris Sharma. So when I read that article about him winning the North American Championships by campusing to the top, I was like, wow, there's someone else in the world who climbs like me. Because right. in Sweden, everybody tried to climb like François Le Grand or Anton Le, Le Menestrel in total control, you know. You must push with your feet. Yeah, yeah, it was all about that. And maybe that was good for vertical right. routes, but climbing was changing, you know. It was mm -hmm. getting steeper and more powerful and you had to climb faster. So... There was, like, from the first day when I walked in there to, into the climbing community back in 94, people said, ah, this guy, he's, he's too much, you know. And it's, it's been hard, you know. Everybody, all the, and up to this day in Sweden, I mean, it's not a place where you go and get inspired, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Right. So it was, it was always about going your own way and doing what you... Follow your heart, basically. Mm -hmm. Even if that sounds cliche, it was definitely the truth because there was no support from nowhere except my sponsors fortunately so I really have them to thank and a few people that I've met along the way that I've connected with and most of these people are still some of my best friends today mm -hmm. who really and today as you see how climbing is changing you know it's going in a direction that I'm globally that I'm not maybe so interested in you know it's becoming so much more about climbing being a sport with grades and competitions. I think there's another aspect of climbing that's way beyond that, you know, and that's why we, I still climb today, you know, because I think I, I would have stopped otherwise. It would have been too tough to always go against the stream, you know, and doing what everybody taught you not to do. So, right. uh, well, let me actually, that, I wanted to kind of ask you a couple things that might be connected to what you just said mm -hmm. you, we had a conversation uh, a couple few days ago when we met and we were just talking all about all this these things with your uh, the grigri and the oh yeah not the belay device but the what is <laughs> like an amulet yet. yeah um, and so you have this connection uh, to some of these you know and that's a North African thing and and uh, what came across in this conversation without going into a ton of detail though we can but is that you have this uh, that you have this part of you that is driven by some of these uh, maybe I would go as far as say sort of mystical aspects of the world you know 
which implies that I, you're, you're a, a person of kind of deep thought or you want that out of life. I mean, because you seek those things out, you know, maybe some of them came from your culture, but, Mm -hmm. you know, in a modern age, it'd be very easy to dismiss some of these mystical things. So can you talk a little bit about your climbing and your connection to climbing Mm -hmm. at all in terms of of that? Like, you know, you've talked about your style and about being this driven little kid and you've hinted at why or that it's something that you need to as much as you need food and water and sleep and things. Mm-hmm. So why do you think that is? I guess is what I'm getting at. <clears throat> well, <laughs> as I said, I'm quite old school. That's why I hang out with people like Christian Griffith, you know, and mm-hmm. a lot of other old timers, Alan Karn, you know, or Zippy or whoever. Because if you look at society today and, and even climbing, it's, you know, when, when climbing started, like here in North America or everywhere, those people were trying to, 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 to leave the, the modern society behind, you know? They wanted to take acid and get up on El Cap, you know, and just leave everything mm-hmm. behind. And today, you know, climbing is just becoming as much as square as a society, I think. You know, it's, it's, it's becoming boring, the way I look at it. I'm not saying it's all boring, but, you know, it's so much... A sport, but as I said, I think there's so much more about climbing than than that. And you know, in climbing, I found I mean there are many ways to 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 approach because I I don't think the world is as simple as it looks. There is another parallel dimension, and we're not going to talk about religion or spirituality so much here. But and I've sensed that since I was really really young. And you know, when you climb, that's all you do. You leave everything behind because. In our Western world, you have to be so smart, you have to think. It's so much in the mind all the time, you know. And that's kind of what makes people successful. It's not going out, being completely uh, savage, you know, stripping your shirt off and just moving on a rock, screaming. That's not uh, what people do usually. But for me, that was always a way to be able to express myself. And I always felt really, really natural and being myself, you know, moving on, on rock, that was me, there was nothing. I didn't have to be anything else. I didn't need to be smart, which of, of course helps sometimes in climbing, but <laughs> I was always driven, driven by a natural just instinct, and that's why I climbed like I did. I didn't care about someone telling me, no, you should work more with your feet. This is the way I climb. Mm-hmm. This is my way to express myself. And when I climb like this, and especially in, in, in hard routes, Sometimes when you really push yourself, you get into this state of mind where you just leave everything. And I, you, know, you don't even remember how you did the moves. You don't know anything. And I mean, you can't find this state of mind in the, or in the everyday life. It's impossible. Maybe some very deep meditation or there are other, some people use drugs. There are ways to approach this really you know, clear, state of mind, you know, where all the thoughts and all the things just disappear and everything becomes clear. And you can do it in many ways in climbing, but that's why I think, you know, just going out and move on rock for me is the most important thing in in climbing. It doesn't have to be hard necessarily. Of course, that can take you to even to the next level, but this way of just leaving everything behind and being up there on your own. And that's why I also like going bouldering on my own. It's just me and the, and the rock. There's nothing else there. 
or even if I climb a route, I just disappear up into because climbing is it's it's an inner journey more than anything I think I mean the physical thing is one thing but what you experience and where your mind goes it's so far beyond just this I mean even today in rifle I mean I some routes are great but some of them it's maybe not the most beautiful you know there is some manufactured stuff and today it was raining but when I was climbing this route I went beyond rifle and, and everything, you know, just really far out. And I, this also start a bit, you know, I don't know what you call it here, but a bit out there, what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is what climbing is for me, and it has always been. And I hope it, it will always be like this, because it's, uh, it's like a moving meditation, you know. And some people say it's not, but for me it definitely is because you concentrate on one thing and you disappear in your mind and it's very rare that I'm that focused in anything else in life. And I guess that's why it's so um, addictive also. You just have to do it, like every day. You want to be there, you know. And as I said, it doesn't have to be something hard or, you know, dangerous, but just to go up there and move on the rock and being in that element. I don't know if this made any sense whatsoever. But. Of course it did. <laughs> no, I, I, it really did because there was, while you were talking, um, s- some of our other conversations from earlier uh, started to also make kind of some sense. I mean, and I wanted to talk about your music. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I just hinted at some of the things, you know, we were just gabbing about, and you were talking about, again, some of the, the kind of, connections you have to these rituals from your Moroccan side and as I just said you you seek those things out in a modern age you know you weren't born you know in a tent in the desert in Morocco so you had to go find them so mm-hmm. do you think some of those things are the same uh, the same drive to find that beyond experience I mean is that connected to any of that yeah so I mean if, if, if you look at music I mean you can play music just for fun, mm-hmm. like this, like we do here in this part of the world. It's, it's entertainment right. most of the time for people to have a good time, maybe become a little bit nostalgic, maybe, you know, have a fling with someone on the dance floor or whatever, you know, it's very... But if you look at where music came from originally and how it's still played in quite a few, few places in the world, the music is just a tool to get you somewhere else to this state of mind and it's always used in a context that's much bigger than just the music and as I said it's not for entertainment it doesn't have anything to do with that whatsoever and for instance in in Morocco uh, we have this kind of a cult that's called Gnawa and the music and a lot of the spiritual background came with the black Africans coming through the Sahara Desert and uh, you can find this cult, although it has different names and slightly different shapes in all of North Africa. And it kind of mixed with, with Islam and became different, thera- thera- how do you say, therapeutic, therapeutic? Therapeutic? Therapeutic uh, rituals, you know. People would go to, you know, if they had a problem with, a, if they were obsessed with spirits or if they had a, it could be all kinds of mental illnesses. I mean, today here, if you have this problem, you go to a doctor. And very often these doctors can't really help you out because it's not in their book. And uh, you can find this in Morocco. 
you can find it in West Africa. If you look at uh, voodoo in Haiti or in Brazil or in Cuba, you have the Santeria, you have the Candomblé, you have this thing, or even the shamanism in, in the north of Scandinavia with the Sami people, it's the same thing. Or, you know, in the rainforests of South America or with the Native Americans here, people have been doing this always. And it's not something that someone just came up with just like that overnight. It was something that people needed. And I have a very big need of these things, you know. And that's why I go to Morocco to these rituals. I mean, it's not climbing, but it's a place where, again, I can express myself and I can go into a different state of mind. And, I, I, and I, I've seen some pretty scary things, how this thing expresses itself. You know, people cutting themselves with knives, burning themselves, you know, uh, drinking boiling water and just, just really out there things that, you know, if you would see someone doing that here, they would say, ah, this guy is crazy. Mm -hmm. But there is completely... I would say normal and it's uh, there's a way for for people to take care of a person like this and it's not these rituals it's not just something that happens people having a jam and people you know get a, you know freak out it's very well organized mm -hmm. it's very strict the music you play with the right color the right spirit or saint with the right incense and there are a lot of people there taking care of people who fall into trance because I've fallen into trance in rave parties in Sweden, things like this, because I, I'm a raver, to be honest, <laughs> since I was 13, and I love techno and all these things. But what I realized there is that if you really get really deep, there's nobody there to help you. They don't even know how to take care of someone who, who's in this state of mind. And if someone is you know, ODing on drugs, well, then you end up in a, in a hospital. But that's not... you know, I. I've never drinking alcohol, I never tried any drugs. I don't drink coffee, I don't smoke, I don't do anything. It's another way of getting there, you know, and for me it's been climbing or dancing or music. So that's why I try just to go to the places where people know what it's all about, you know, mm -hmm. and who have a really long background of taking care of these things. So, uh, yeah, that's just the Moroccan part, you know, mm -hmm. how things how things happen there. I mean, we could have a podcast only about Gnawa music, you know, because it's so it's so big. But you play. And yeah, then I'm also a musician. Right. And that the thing is is that you yeah, you're part of it on that end of mm -hmm. things as well. Mm -hmm. Um playing several different instruments, mm -hmm. specifically the the one with the G. Uh, gimbri. The gimbri. Yeah. Right. In these and you 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 talked about how it's like um Again, it's not just jamming, you mm -hmm. know, it's not just like, oh, what do you know? I know this, mm -hmm. what do I, although I suppose you could do that as well. But within these contexts, it's a, it's a pretty strict tradition yep. of what you're playing mm -hmm. that's tied to all these, these other things. Yep. Where did you first, like, pick those instruments up? Were they, was that something you knew at home or was it some connection to your father's side of the family or... Yeah, it's it's been a strange path, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, this is really not something that's mainstream. Same thing how climbing was when I started. It mm -hmm. was climbing. It, it was unheard of. It didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Same thing with, with the Gnawa music. And, you know, these days there's a big Gnawa festival in Essaouira in Morocco, which is more a folkloric festival. It's not a ritual. Mm -hmm. You know, the Gnawa masters, they get up on stage and they've invited some 
really good jazz musicians from the States, you know, and some funk musicians from France, and they go up and jam, and there are 300,000 people there dancing around. And that's great. And a lot of people who go to this festival, if they come from abroad, they're like, wow, this gimbre is pretty cool. They buy themselves a gimbre, they go back home to France or Spain, they see on YouTube a little bit how you play, and, and that's it. But man, you missed the whole point. This instrument is a sacred instrument. It belongs to a huge tradition. But a lot of people approach things this way today. It's a lot about, you know, it's like a supermarket. You just go in there and take what you want and you leave. Same thing with spirituality, a lot of other things, you know. People don't take their time to go deeper inside. And I think the same thing is with, with climbing a lot of times. There is so much more to it than just jumping between big yellow blobs in a, in a climbing gym, you know. So I, I heard this music in Morocco one, one summer, and it was just like straight into my heart, because before that I had experimented quite a lot with West African music. We have a big West African, not big, but a strong West African community in Gothenburg who play a lot of percussion music, like djembe and things like this. And as I came from the rave scene, that became interesting, you know. But it wasn't my music, you know. Because there are a lot of music styles. I played all types of music from pretty much all, all uh, six corners of the world. But it's not my music. Like I played the Yidaki or the Didgeridoo for many, many years in a really high level. And I went to the Arnhem Land in Australia to play. But I'm not, I'm not an Aborigine, you know. I'm not from any tribe. Although I could be, become a skin brother and you know, be adopted by some people, it's, it's not from here. I don't have it in my genes. Mm -hmm. But with the Gnawa music, you know, I just heard this, mu this music and like, oh shit, I, I, I just lost my mind, you know. It's, I don't know if you ever experienced this feeling of just getting overwhelmed. It's like a, it's like a dream almost. So I had to look it up, like, what the hell is this? How can, some, how can this be so strong? And again, as it's really underground, it was very difficult to get into the scene. And especially if you're an outsider, you don't have any background, you don't, have, you don't know anything. I was, just, I was still quite young at the time. At least you spoke Arabic. At least I spoke yeah. Arabic and yeah, right. I was kind of dark-skinned, you know, yeah. and they said maybe this guy has some gnawa, right. you know, somehow. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it was a long journey and especially I got back to Sweden and there were no gnawa musicians in Sweden. Nobody knew what it was. And it was... I was out touring with my brother's band, which was a really a band that took off like in the beginning of 2000, that's called Kingston Air Force. We were on tour and I was the percussionist for them and I would dress up like a Gnawa musician, you know, and of course nobody knew what that was. But at one gig, there was this guy in the door, he was like, he just came up to me, I said, Gnawa, like, all right, so uh, how do you know about this? He said, okay, my father's been playing Gnawa music since the 60s. So I got his father's number and I called this man up the day after. And uh, this man, his name is Christer Botel. He's one of the greatest jazz musicians to come out of Sweden. And he's one of the biggest musicians in, in what we call world music today. And he played a lot with one very famous uh, improvisation trumpetist whose name is Don Cherry, the father of Nene Cherry and okay. Eagle Eye Cherry. And he was right there with Onet Coleman and all these great jazz musicians. But the, the names that I just said, they, they always took jazz in more to the world music thing. 
So he had been playing Gnawa music and also Hunter's music from southern uh, Mali, from Wasolo. And I, w I booked a ticket to Stockholm. I, I said, I just have to meet this man. And from that first day, we've, you know, we just clicked. Although he's, what is he, 40 years older than me? 50? 40 years older than me. You know, he became my mentor in, in music because mm -hmm. I had studied classic violin for 10 years and played the violin. But that was my parents' choice. This was my choice. And with Kirister, you know, there was this spiritual connection. This was really the old school connection because mm -hmm. he was a, an old school dude, you know. He was playing in all those joints in New York back in the day and it was just stories. He was in Mali when no other white people would go and play Hunter's music. No, anybody can do it. Same thing with Ginawa. So he was my first teacher in, in the Gimbri and also in the Donzongoni, which is the hunter's harp from, from Mali. And um, yeah, this is how I continued my, my, my musical life, was through a lot through Krister. And, uh, but of course, I have my own path, but he's still up to date, my, my mentor. Mm -hmm. And this is almost 15 years ago. So. Right. How old is he? He's, he just turned 74. Okay. But if, he, if I would call him now, you would talk to him, you would think that he's 15 or 20. Oh, right. Very young, very you know, and very, you know, still doing his thing. Mm -hmm. And so have you somehow integrated this climbing music thing together in terms of not just maybe on some sort of, again, mystical level, but, but just in terms of professionally? Like, is it something you can do traveling and mm -hmm. it, as Part, part of your, uh, you know, part of your existence? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've tried a little bit, and depending on where I travel, maybe there are some musicians that mm -hmm. could be interesting to meet. Like this trip, I hope we'll get a jam going with you someday, see if it happens, who knows. But, um, for instance, we do these big events with one of my main um, partners, Petzel, every year. That's called the Petzel Rock Trip. Mm -hmm. And that has been a great... Uh, way to sort of combine climbing and music because we always have these big parties one of the guys uh, Laurent de la Fouchardière la Fouche as he's called he's a, he's also a musician and a DJ so like for the first rock trip that I came to in 2004 that was the same thing I hitched I did everything to get there and in the evening there was a gig and I just got on stage and I put some instruments together and we started playing you know And uh, that was in 2004. Now, last year in Turkey, I think we were like four or five or six musicians playing mm -hmm. at every party that we had on the rock trip. Okay. And there were climbers. There was Sean Villanueva from Belgium, and there was all these guys, you know. And it's so nice to be able to share that. Uh, you know, we're climbers, but it's not only about, you know, two-finger right. pocket, and then you get to this crimp but also about music, and I think a lot of times music can be a more relaxed atmosphere than climbing. Sometimes climbing makes people a bit tense, even if it's not a competition, you know, right. because they're so focused. But in the evening, you can just relax and play music and just connect in a different way. And that's, that's what's great if I go to Morocco, you know, if I go there climbing. I go climbing all day, and in the evening, it's going to be nice food and music jam and maybe even something more but uh, I think it's a great combination to mm -hmm. be, able to be able to do because you can't climb 24 hours a day anyway and like other friends of mine have been jamming a bit with Chris Sharma and Dave Graham is a lot into music if I look at North American climbers and um, 
actually one time I booked Chris for a few gigs in, uh, in Sweden and I said, okay, it's going to be too boring if you're just going to be here up here climb, talking about climbing and showing climbing videos. So in the end, it went into a jam. So I played the didgeridoo and he played the shukahachi flute and we were screening all these photos and after a while I put some techno backing tracks on and uh, it sounds maybe like not so, like something uh, amazing but it was pretty cool because people didn't expect that sure sure I had no idea and uh, people were like shit does he play you know right. and wow what you know what's going on yeah totally <laughs> so that was a uh, all these little things it's a, it's a fun way because in the same way as climbing you know I come to, to North America if I didn't have climbing mm-hmm. you know if I didn't have music how could I connect with with you here, right. I, I would never meet you otherwise. No. If it wasn't through these things, probably. Probably not. Unfortunately. But so climbing in music, it's like yeah. a, it's like a, how do you say, a way in. Right. In many ways. Right. And uh, that's why, you know, it's nice to travel with an instrument also. Like I have this story, we were in, I was in Moab, I was busking in the streets playing the didgeridoo and this dude just came up from nowhere, you know, and we became really good friends. It was a great interaction, you know, he was, all, he was also a musician. Same with climbing, you travel, you meet people, and, you know, sometimes you make friends for life. Right. This is amazing, I think. Well, I think it's also, when you were just saying that, you know, it's a pretty open, accepting community, both of them. Mm-hmm. Although, within it, you know, there are these traditions that can butt heads, you know, with climbing and with music. You know, like, and it's actually kind of along the same lines, like mm. traditionalists versus people who want to change things. Mm. You know, maybe all pursuits have this, but but you've, yeah, you've got climbing that the old way and the new way, and they don't always get along. And you know, I just thought of like bluegrass, and you know, there's some people who there's only one way to play bluegrass, and if you if you throw a jazz scale in on, you're you're done, you're out, you're like, <laughs> beat it, you know, like. Yeah. But at the same time, in general, over over time, it's it's a it's a commonality and a kind of an accepting group. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just heard an interview with uh, he was an old player from from the South, like back in Muscle Shoals down in Alabama, like mm-hmm. in the seventies. Uh, uh, um, Spooner Oldham, his name is, and he was a session musician down in this studio in Alabama where like Wilson Pickett and Aretha Franklin would come down there but all these guys all the the studio guys were white and all these black musicians would come down because they wanted to get this sound that was Mm -hmm. coming out of the studio Muscle Shoals and it was like the only place not only in that town but practically in Alabama at the time where it was just like you know we're actually talking late 60s you know Mm -hmm. where black folks and white folks would just hang out on equal footing that's and like cool. they would do this in the studio and then you know they the the artists would have to go to segregated mm. hotels and whatnot mm. so i feel like yeah maybe there is this kind of grand acceptance mm. based on well can you play well, yeah i can play <laughs> you know yeah, or can a, you climb yeah i can climb yeah it's a universal you know? language you yeah, know certainly so so where are you at right now i mean what's uh what's on the plate Mm-hmm. Where are you sitting with your music and with uh, with climbing currently? Yeah, so I think uh, just a little bit to finish what I... It, it, everything's connected here mm-hmm. in one way or another. I mean, climbing for me and this whole life, it's just, a, it's just a journey, you know? About discovering things and... I mean, people think that they know everything or trying to understand, but 
you know, the more I travel, the more people I meet, it's like, I don't know anything about anything. <laughs> so you just try to stay, try to stay curious and humble and just go, try to go somewhere and see for yourself what's going on. And that's same for climbing as in, as, as music. And if you look at my, what I've done in climbing, there's not like, wow, he's done this and that and But if you look at where I've gone and a little bit more about the volume that says pretty much about me as a climber, I've traveled to more than 40 countries to climb. I don't know how many hundreds of climbing areas and climbed around 1,500 routes between the eighth and ninth grade. This is a French grading, you know. So I'm not really looking for being, you know, everybody's like, yeah, I have to do the hardest thing, and I have to do this and be the best. For me, it's just about the discovery, you know. And right now, we're on our way to Smith Rock, where I haven't been yet. And of course, and I have an idea of, okay, I want to do, just do it. It's such a mythical route, and it looks like such a beautiful line. But I think it's more important to go there to just be curious and just see what's, what's there. I mean, maybe I see a different line that's, that's great. I mean, a lot of people, when they go to a new area, they already have their scorecard ready. Mm-hmm. Man, how is that possible? You haven't even been to the place. Does this route even look good? Is it even good? But, you know, that's how things are. They want to do their first, whatever, 13A or 13B or, you know, it's very easy to get drawn into this way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So we're just on a, on a journey, you know, and kind of see what happens. And if we find something that's, that's inspiring, we'll, I'll, I'll try to do it, you know. And that's been always my driving force in climbing. It's, 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 it's about the journey. The goal usually comes by itself. And people always ask me, you know, you don't feel a lot of pressure from your sponsors. There are a lot of amazing young climbers coming up today. I said, that, that's never been my bag, you know. Right. That's never been me. I've never been the best climber. I never wanted to be. That was not the, my intention ever. It was just a climb, and I was, I've been very fortunate to be able to do this the way I do it. And, um, yeah, that's still the thing. And there's no expiry date for, for a climber, I think. If you look at hard routes, I, I still think my hardest routes are in the future, always. Because climbing is for life. I mean, I have a lot of friends. They're in their 40s, their 50s. They still climb better than ever. Mm-hmm. There's no stress. At the same time, I said earlier that I'm not maybe the most smart climber. If I want to do my really hardest routes, maybe I shouldn't wait until I'm 60. It's probably a good idea to try to start to think about that a little bit now, you know. But just in general, like how time passes for me in climbing, it's just go out and climb and, and travel and, and see what's out there, you know. And a lot of places I go back, some places I never return. This is probably my fourth time in rifle and I was here in 99 the first time and every time I leave I say okay this is place to to return to there's a very unique style of climbing there's a kind of a unique community here that that you can't find in anywhere else and that's that's the way things go and same thing with music you know just travel and again it's it's a universal language it's a great way to travel and see places and meet people like I was in China climbing and I wanted to study this uh, Chinese violin, two-string violin, called the Erhu. And I don't speak Mandarin or anything. But somehow I found this teacher, and I mean, he didn't speak any English or any of my languages. But it was just so great. We would, ha- we would hang out the whole day, play, laugh, and just, you know, 
and we, we didn't speak one single word of each other's language. That just blows your mind. Mm-hmm. Because there are other ways of, of connecting. Mm-hmm. And uh, the more you do this, the more you realize, realize that. It's, it's uh, how do you say? It's eternal. And I think that's the same thing with life, you know. It's not going to end here. Right. There's a big energy force that's started somewhere, it's going somewhere, and we're part of that. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't end here, so... I think, I know this sounds, again, very cliche, but, you know, if you want to look at life and climbing and all these things in a bigger perspective, it's true, in a way. And I hope I can stay connected to this philosophy, you know, for as long as possible. All right. Well, thanks a lot for sitting down. Um, I need to get some food in you. You <laughs> all day and then in the rain and the cold and came straight here. I totally appreciate that. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Really uh, interesting and inspiring to hear well, your story. You. Thanks to me. It's an honor to be here. Right thanks. on. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Saeed, the man, Bill Hodge, for coming on the show. Super fun to sit down with the guy. I look forward to running into him somewhere in the world in the future. Hey, folks, if you want to help out the Cast, you can a bunch of different ways. Supporting our sponsors, buy some Belay Specs, enter Enormacast at checkout, belayspecs.com. Check out Peter Gilroy's Jewelry at peterwgilroy.com enter Normo at checkout for a discount or just head over to the website normacast.com click on the sponsor page that's all there click on the help out page that's all there yeah gotta lift a finger but shouldn't be too hard I do appreciate the support maybe I'll see you on your ray don't forget to check your knot pretty good and I'm not uh, not scared at all I just feel kind of feel kind of invincible me too I got a very positive attitude about this good me too yeah it's getting hot in here or is it just me